This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. On episode 18 of the podcast, I am so honored to have as my guest, the Marita Golden. Over the years, her life and her work has served as both personal and professional inspiration to me and so many other writers. Marita Golden is an award-winning author of over 20 works of fiction and nonfiction. Her books include the novels The Wide Circumference of Love and After, as well as the memoirs Migrations of the Heart, Saving Our Sons, and Don't Play in the Sun, One Woman's Journey Through the Color Complex. Her most recent work of nonfiction is The New Black Woman Loves Herself, Has Boundaries, and Heals Every Day. Marita is also the co-founder and president emerita of the Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Foundation. Marita is also a veteran teacher of writing. She's taught at the University of Lagos in Nigeria and has served as a member of the faculties of the MFA Graduate Creative Writing Program at George Mason University. And she has also been on the faculty in the MA Creative Writing Program at Johns Hopkins University. As a literary consultant, she offers writing workshops, coaching, and manuscript evaluation services. It should come as no surprise that Marita is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Writers for Writers Award, presented by Barnes & Noble and Poets and Writers, the Fiction Award for her novel, After, awarded by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association, and she is a two-time NAACP Image Award nominee. Marita has appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show, and get this, she has been featured as a question on Jeopardy. (laughs) If that's not a resume, I don't know what is. Marita Golden is truly one of the OGs of Black America's best writers, and she is a treasure in the literary community who has no interest in slowing down with her contributions to the literary world. During our interview, Marita shares her secrets and strategies she has used over the years to have a successful, diverse, and long-lasting literary career. We talk time management, and we talk about why it's a waste of time to feel guilty about the need to make money from your writing. We also talk about self-care for writers and why it's not just a trending buzzword. And of course, we talk about the importance of community. Get ready to be inspired because this interview is going to leave you lit. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Marita Golden. Hi, Lori. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I am very happy that you're here. It's an honor to have you on the show, especially considering your incredibly long literary career. I think that the listeners are going to learn so much and be so inspired by hearing about your literary journey. Before we get started, though, before we jump into you know how you have run your career, I did want to ask you what I mentioned in the intro 
how does one become a Jeopardy answer? And (laughs) (laughs) what was the question? The question was, writer Marita Golden, in her essay, Zora and Me, writes about what writer? Only one person got the answer right. (laughs) And, you know, they're not really that great in answering African-American questions. (laughs) And it was so funny because I watch Jeopardy periodically, but that evening my phone just blew up. Text, text. And I said, what's going on? And then look at Jeopardy, look at Jeopardy. And it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And how do you become a Jeopardy? I, of all the things I never would have thought, but they're always looking for, you know, writing, arts, history. And because I'm a passionate devotee of all things relating to Zora Neale Hurston, I was asked to write this essay for um, Glory Edom's book. I think it's called Reading While Black or... Well-Read Black Girls. Yeah, Well-Read Black Girls. And um, I did an essay about Zora Neale Hurston. It's called Zora and Me. So that's how I got to be a Jeopardy. I wasn't the answer. Zora was the answer. (laughs) I was the question. (laughs) That feels like a significant signpost that you have made it when you become a Jeopardy answer, right? Yeah, I think people are even more impressed by that than the fact that I was on the Oprah Winfrey show. (laughs) Oprah and Alex Trebek, okay? Hey, I still think it's the coolest thing ever that you can say that. Yeah, I think cool too. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so moving on, I wanted you on this show because I know from following your career for a very long time that you're a big deal. But I noticed that you have been putting on your social media feeds posts that mark 40 years of a literary career, because I Mm -hmm. think it was 40 years that your first book came out. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, before we get into the career, is how do you define yourself in the literary world? Like, you've been an editor, you've been a writer, you've been an author, you've been a teacher, you've launched an entire literary organization. Do you still say, I'm a writer first, or do you have a different kind of identity for yourself in the literary world? I still say I'm a writer first because I would not have done all those other things. The foundation of all those other things is the writing. I co-founded the Hurston Wright Foundation because I was a writer, but also because I was a writer who believes a lot in community and knew that 30 years ago, there did not exist the kinds of institutions that Black writers needed to be in community, to sustain a writing career. But if you would ask me, I don't think writer would be the first thing I'd say that I am, but I am a writer and I'm a literary activist and I'm a literary consultant and I'm a novelist and and all of those things. And actually this season of the podcast, we're talking a lot about community and I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later, but I love that you brought that up, that that was one of your motivations. So when you started your career all those many years ago, What did you want to be? I mean, literally, when you went to college, were you like, I'm going to be a writer and that's it? Or did you have other professional plans? Well, when I was in college, I mean, I'd written for the high school newspaper. And I think the thing that really got me into writing as a possible career was I was dating a journalist who wrote for a now defunct weekly newspaper called The National Observer. He wrote feature articles. So one week he'd be writing about James Earl Jones on Broadway. Then the next week he'd be writing something that was political. And he just seemed to 
have so much fun. And um, he said, I get paid to be curious. So, you know, I was writing poetry, had gotten some poetry published in an anthology that Nikki Giovanni edited, but I hadn't really thought about writing as a serious endeavor. And I said, oh, so you can get paid and you can be curious. Hmm, let me check this out. So then I went to the journalism school at Columbia where I got great training, you know, no fear of the typewriter, no fear of a blank page. And I then became a freelance writer for Essence Magazine and many other magazines. And as I was writing journalism, I reached a point where I wanted to write stories that nobody but me could write. I wanted to use my imagination. And so that's when I turned to fiction and took some classes at the new school and met one of my longtime mentors who's now 93. And we've been friends since 1973. then went into imaginative writing, but all of it's imaginative to some extent. So yeah, I'm a writer. I am a writer. And I, and it's been such a blessing to be a writer. I mean, my writing has taken me all over the world. My writing has forced me to tackle issues that I wanted to tackle, that I was afraid to tackle. I wrote a novel about Alzheimer's disease back in 2017, which I have no connection to, But that launched four years of writing. The novel came out that I did a big piece for the Washington Post on the fact that African-Americans are more likely to get Alzheimer's. And so I said, okay, I'm through, but I wasn't. And then I edited an anthology of fiction and nonfiction about Alzheimer's by caregivers and writers. And I would never have just woke up and said, oh, let me write about Alzheimer's. Let me spend the next five years. And it was so it enhanced my life so much. So my writing has been like this magic carpet that has taken me into so many wonderful places. So one of the things that I always ask my guests, and you kind of just alluded to it, is what was the best education that you got to be a writer? I mean, you said you went to Columbia Journalism School, but you also said, you know, like traveling and being curious, it's all part of the you know, making you a better writer. If you were going to tell a writer today that said to you, you know, Marita, do I need to go to the journalism school? Do I need to get an MFA? What do you think is the most important education for somebody who wants to be a creative writer? It's to write. <laughs> and if you make a solid and enduring commitment to craft and your goal is excellence, that will lead you into doing all the other things. It will lead you into deciding if an MFA is what you want to get. It will lead you to creating community with other writers. It will lead you to reading widely. It will lead you to traveling. So once you make the solid commitment, I want to write. I mean, for me, it was I wanted to write I also wanted to make a difference. I wanted to be a writer. You know, you have those dreams when you first, I want to be famous, the Pulitzer Prize, you know, all this money. And um, I have gotten everything that I wanted, but it did not come to me the way I had dreamed. You know, you send up this menu to God and, you know, it's very interesting. I recently read a little anecdote in a spiritual book that I read in the mornings about imagine that in heaven for sake of argument as God's creating each of us she says your job is to be me 
when I send you down there. You're not going to be me the way Lori's going to be me. You're going to be me in your own way. And that's the same way it is with writing and the writing career. I was called to spend a great deal of my time creating community for Black writers. And obviously that fulfilled something very important in me. I mean, when I was in college, I was an activist. I was always creating community. I mean, if you put me in a room with five other women, I will find a way for us to become a community that meets every three months. I mean, that is simply my DNA and that is my expression in life. And so, no, my expression in life was not to win a Pulitzer yet to top the New York Times bestseller yet, but it was to do these really important things that needed to be done. So I was a steward of bringing those things and those stories into the world. And so when I wrote a book about the color complex, that was revolutionary. I mean, when I was writing Don't Play in the Sun, for example, One Woman's Journey Through the Color Complex, I said, okay, surely there's a personal book where a black woman has written from personal experience about me and brown skin. Uh-uh. No, there've been scholarly studies, there've been history, but not that book. So my calling was to write that book, just as with you, the groundbreaking work that you've done around the same issue. Those books you wrote had not been done. They were waiting for you to write them. So we have these visions of what it has to be in order for us to be successful. But that's really not true. We have a unique calling in the world. Did you have, like you said earlier that, you know, for the Jeopardy question that you wrote a lot about Zora Neale Hurston, do you have a literary ancestor or literary hero that you look to for inspiration for your work in this world as a writer or as a literary activist? Is there somebody's life story or whose work really has kind of motivated you through your career? I think it probably would be Zornil Hurston. When I read about her life and realized that she had written novels, journalism, plays, short stories, that she'd been an activist and a groundbreaking anthropologist, I said, okay, she was a woman of letters. And so I decided that I was going to be a woman of letters and I was going to write across genres. One of the great things about doing that is because while you're waiting for a novel to come into being, which takes so long, you can write journalism and make some money. And that's the advice I give to people, that if they can at all be a writer who writes across genre, that's a very good thing. And the money thing is important. I mean, I started my career when I was a divorced single mother, and I wrote Migrations of the Heart getting up two hours in the morning. Oh, I got get up four and I'd meditate and exercise for an hour. And then from five to seven, I would write. And a big part of writing my book was I, I was a single mother. I wanted money for my son. I wanted money to give him a good life. So I was writing, yes, for self-expression. I mean, when I edited the anthology, Wild Women Don't Wear No Blues, this compilation of black women. And that's my best-selling book. Wild women don't wear no blues. Black women writers on love, men, and sex. The fact that it has sex in the title, I'm sure is one of the reasons it's a bestseller. But I had decided that I wanted to buy a house. 
And I holed up in my bedroom one weekend and said, by the end of this weekend, you will have an idea that is marketable, that is saleable, that's going to get you the kind of advance that can get you a house. And I came up with that idea. And of course, the novels sort of come to me in different ways. When I wrote Saving Our Sons, Raising Black Children in a Turbulent World, yes, that was a response to the violence in the Black community, the the drug wars, and the fact that my own son had seen some of his friends get killed. It was also money. I wanted to get my son out of the public schools where he was in physical danger and put him in a private school. So I wrote a book that got me a six-figure advance. So I don't think we should ever be afraid to say, I want money. I'm writing this in part for money. You know, writers are the only people that are assumed to do this for altruism. No. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that. You're like anticipating all my questions. Of course you are, because you've been in this game. You know these questions, which is always writers are always struggling, right? With, well, how do I make art and make money, right? And I think that's so, I love what you said, because people think that as writers, we're supposed to be fairies or mermaids, you know, like yeah. these mythical creatures yeah. that flit around and ideas float in our heads and we eat fairy dust to keep ourselves fed. No, you wanted private school for your son. You wanted to buy a house. And so you used your skills to create a marketable book. But let's review everyone, just in case you didn't hear it in the intro, Marita has written 21 or 22 books. Well, if you count the new editions of old books, which you're supposed to do because that's got a new ISBN. It's 22. Wow. So throughout your career, you did this amazing thing where you were able to give birth to your creative fiction projects that came whenever and however they came. You were able to do nonfiction projects that you were passionate about. And And I was heading a major literary organization. Sometimes I say, Marita, how did you do this? Well, I want to know. I want you to answer that question because there are people listening, including myself, who want to write fiction, but obviously we can't eat fiction, right? That's not the moneymaker. We care about issues. We do want to put our name on something, maybe nonfiction, and maybe we even want to be involved in other things. And you're a mom and a wife. So can you give us an idea? And again, as much of the actual, like, I mean, you just said you got up at four in the morning. So did you hear that, people? She got up before the sunshine. (laughs) That meant I went to bed by 10. So tell us a little bit about, you know, these years where you have a child, you have other obligations, you're writing more than one book. Like, what does that look like? Not just the like, I get up at four, but you can tell us a little bit about the daily schedule, but also mentally what kind of mindset do you have to have? Because if it was just as easy as like, okay, so you do this, you do this, do this, ta-da, you too can write 21 books and create an organization. There has to be a certain mindset that kept you in that flow state of creation. Can you talk a little bit about what does that look like when you're juggling all these different things? Maybe you have a certain schedule. Again, maybe you broke up your day differently. What was that like for you? I think... All of those things that I was involved in were passionate activities that fed me and enlarged me. So that, for example, when I was teaching at Virginia Commonwealth University, I taught three days a week. 
and I was in the creative writing program. So I had those classes, but then I had two days of the week that if I wanted to, I could devote to writing. But I was always a person who would write a couple of hours a day. You know, I'd say, okay, I'm working on a novel, so I'm going to write five days a week for an hour and a half or two hours. With the foundation, Clyde McIlvain co-founded it with me. And I could be on the phone with Clyde at eight o'clock in the evening to solve a problem or to figure out how to do something. And so the teaching had its place. The literary activism had its place. The writing had its place. But also I have always been a person who could take care of myself. And that's crucial. My mother died when I was 21 and my father died when I was 23. So their early deaths taught me that I was going to live longer. I looked at their early deaths and said, okay, I'm going to live longer. I'm going to outlive them. I'm going to live long enough to see my grandchildren. And so in my 20s, I started doing yoga, cardio, making sure that I had a good diet. If I was mentally crazy, I would go see a therapist. I had a whole network of girlfriends. Now, this was before we used the phrase self-care, but I was basically had a strong foundation of caring for myself. And I was also good at saying no. My no gene is very strong. And so I could always set boundaries. I said, look, look, I have to write, I have to put in my 90 minutes. So, you know, know what? I can't do that. If something came up and I couldn't do my 90 minutes writing at my desk, I would write while waiting in the doctor's office. I would write while I was on the subway. I would talk into my recorder while I was driving over to VCU. So that having made the solid commitment that a writer is who I am, writing is what I do, it was simply a natural part of my life. And since I decided that literary activism is who I am and what I do, it was a part of my life. And all of these things, in addition to being a wife and a mother and all, they fed me. Anything that sapped me, I got rid of it. And I talk now because I've written these two books, The Strong Black Woman and The New Black Woman. I really talk to writers a lot about caring for yourself. Writing is exhausting. It takes a toll on your body. It can be physically draining. And I don't think writers do one thing enough, and that is celebrate ourselves. We have a tendency to say, well, you know, when the novel's finished in five years, then I'm going to go out for dinner. No, no. I celebrate myself along the way. When I was writing my last novel, when I'd gotten about 80 pages of it and I'd sent it off to my agent, I was so glad that I'd done those 80 pages. I bought a ticket to the Universal Circus just to go out and have fun. Because if I waited till the novel was finished, oh my God. So I'm a good person for weaving in rest, respite, celebration, all of that, which feeds you. And we have a long tradition as people of color, women of color, and writers, of people doing that. For example, Rosa Parks did yoga. Many Black writers have gotten into meditation and all that. So I think that this is a whole thing. It's a lifestyle. Again, we are so on the same page because 
this is one of the things with the Read, Write, and Create platform. This is a message that I really want to incorporate is that writing is a physical activity. I did a kind of a tongue-in-cheek episode for the last season about how I learned how to be a writer by paying attention to the NBA because I live with a basketball fiend. And every time I say something to my husband, he's like, you know what LeBron James would do in that situation? He can always take something back. But he made this point that I never thought about it. And you just said it, is that if I am not physically well, like literally writers, we use our upper body to physically create the product we sell. And I was having a lot of pain in my arms and neck. And like, I ended up having to get a massage, but feeling guilty about it. And my oh, honey, husband, I get a massage once a month. I do now too. Yes. And my husband was like, do you know that LeBron James spends a million dollars a year just on maintaining his body, massages, nutritious. And <laughs> I'm like, I don't have a million dollars. But the point was, he doesn't need that. I mean, he's got trainers, like, you know, the NBA supplies all those things, but he knows that if he wants to be an optimal shape to do his job, then he will invest. And that's what he said. It's an investment. And it's like writers, we too, our physical body has to be well. Try to write with carpal tunnels or a crick in your neck or whatever. And then of course your mental health as well. I love what you said because you were proactive with it from the beginning coming up with meditation, yoga, celebrating yourself. And writers, I hope you are like taking notes because these are the things. Marita, do you mind sharing your age right now with the people? I'm a 73-year-old African-American woman. And she is the most vibrant, active, like in the prime, writing, producing, editing, all of these different things because she understood from the beginning that taking care of herself was just as important as getting the words on the page. Because if you're not physically able or mentally able, you cannot produce. So thank you for that little PSA, everybody. Um, <laughs> um, it is, But it is so important. And it's so very rarely talked about when we talk about the writing life is, hey, have you done your yoga? Did you get enough sleep last night? Did you do massaging and things like that? Because you know, your body will not always be in good shape if you don't take care of it. We think that... We're racing to finish the book when the real joy and fun is figuring out how to write the book. And I write much less now than I did when I was younger. If I'm working on a project, a big book or something like that, now I will write one hour a day. And uh, when I was younger, I would feel, oh, I have to do three or four hours. But I write less, but at the same time, that's more. And I take more time. I'm working on an article now, and this morning I wrote for about 20 minutes, and then I get up for five minutes and stretch and walk around, and then I get back on. And then I don't write for more than two hours, and the writing is not stare at the screen the whole time. You really shouldn't stare at the screen the whole time. You need to rest your eyes and your body. Absolutely. And again, I'm here as a literary activist as well. That's what this platform is all about. And I really do hope people incorporate that kind of thinking in their quest to have a long-lasting literary career. Speaking of which, we know all these different things that you've done. Do you feel like you you know, started here, went all the way to here, and then turned left and turned right and have had this incredibly diverse literary career. A lot of people are like, I was a novelist. I'm still a novelist. I died a novelist, right? Do you feel like the choices that you made to do these different things 
were done, you know, just because you were curious in terms of like, you know, I did the writing of nonfiction. Now I want to try fiction. You know, I'm going to start this organization. Or was it like a feeling of necessity? Meaning if I didn't write this type of book, I wasn't going to succeed. Can you talk just a little bit about choosing to try these different things, everything from teaching to starting the Hurston Wright Foundation? What was the impetus for doing all these different things instead of, let's say, staying in your lane in kind of one position? All of those things were an expression of who I am. I write fiction because I love using my imagination and I want to create worlds that nobody else can create. I write nonfiction because I want to be part of the public discourse around a certain issue like the color complex or violence in Black communities. And also because as a Black woman, I see myself completing and complicating the conventional wisdom about who we are. And the teaching is an expression of my desire to be in community. I think the classroom is a community. You know, it's one of the most intimate spaces you can ever be in with people. And so all of that was just who I am. And so it didn't feel like not being in my lane. It felt like being in my lane. I just had, <laughs> I just had a, lot of, a lot of lanes. You know, one of my former, actually, almost all of my guests have spoken about having multiple projects. I had Jabari Asim on the show. You know, I said, how do you have, I don't know, he's written 20 books in 20 years or something like that. And he was saying, well, you know, I usually write, I've got five projects going at the same time because sometimes I want to work on this little kid's book. And then a couple days later, I might want to work on the adult novel. And he's like, I just have all these different things that I want to do. And I just, that's what I do. And I think a lot of times writers, you know, when they go to like MFA programs and things, they're often told they have to pick one thing. You have to be in fiction or you have to choose creative nonfiction, but nobody's suggesting that they dabble and try and do all these different things. It would suggest that we writers aren't creative enough or intelligent enough to be able to do more than one type of writing at the same time, you know? It doesn't really make any sense, except if you're trying to silo people for an academic program, I think. Well, also silo people for the marketplace. I mean, all these different genres. I mean, for example, what if we lived in a world where stories were just stories? And as an adult, I didn't feel that I couldn't read a young adult book. Or as an intellectual, I didn't feel I couldn't read a romance novel. But in a capitalist society and world, the people who market to us divide us into groups. But in reality, they're all stories. They're all stories, whether it's journalism or an anthology or, or whatever. And that's very, very liberating. It absolutely is. And that's why I now sometimes I just call myself a storyteller because oftentimes when I say I'm a writer, people are like, well, what do you write? I'll be like, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I write everything. So we've already hinted a little bit, but I want to talk about community a little bit and specifically community when you are a writer of color. Can you talk about 
what you think about the importance of having a writing community for particularly Black writers and other writers of color and maybe weave in a little bit your creating the Hurston Wright Foundation as a response to those beliefs? Well, the Hurston Wright Foundation was founded for a very selfish reason. I was lonely <laughs> and I wanted to be around other Black writers. And I figured if I'm lonely, other Black writers are lonely too. And I think that the white aesthetic is like the water or the ocean that fish are in. It's just everywhere. It's all consuming and all assuming. And writers, you know, from the very beginning, Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, Phil's, we were always trying to write ourselves into that ocean. And Writing can be such a lonely occupation. That's the good thing about it, that we are alone with our thoughts and we think these deep thoughts. But there's so much that we don't know about the subjects we're writing, the characters we're creating. And if we are hermetically sealed and never questioned and never challenged, we don't create as effectively or as brilliantly. And for Black writers, it's just enormously gratifying and soul-saving to be in a room where the foundation is already established and you don't get irrelevant, extraneous questions that challenge the legitimacy of the story you're writing. I think it's so interesting that the Hearst Wright Foundation and Kaveh Kahnem were basically founded in the same year. And Toy Derricott and Cornelius and I were all sort of part of that same generation. And um, we found ourselves in positions that in our writing, having published, we were at all for white institutions and we got the wherewithal materially, spiritually, logistically, financially to create these very supportive communities. And you see the, the ways in which it has enlarge the publishing industry. It's forced the publishing industry to continue to recognize another new generation of Black writers and another new generation of Black writers. And so we have, in these institutions, created safe havens for us, which helps our creativity. And we're continuing to contribute to American culture. And not just American culture, but world culture. One of the most satisfying trips I ever took was to Turkey years ago, back in the 90s, when um, there was this famous exhibit called I Dream a World, where Brian Lanker had done all these incredible photographs of very prominent, distinguished Black women, cultural, political, and it was going around the world. So they took it to Turkey, and I was asked to go along with it, be in Turkey for 10 days, and lecture about Black writing, Black women, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll never forget talking to a class of students in um, Istanbul who had been introduced to the work of Zora Neale Hurston by their professor who had studied in the United States and fell in love with Zora Neale Hurston. And what they loved about Zora Neale Hurston was the way in which her work captured the lives of common people, because these were students, many of whom came from villages in Turkey. And they saw in those Black folk their 
Turkish folk. And I learned a very important lesson. You know, we are totally universal. You know, I, I was a point when I told some people, I said, I will never be on another panel where the topic is, is black writing universal? I will never answer that question again. I'll never be on another panel. And so we give so much to the world and we give much of it when we are reinforced by one another. Like you look at the jazz musicians. Oh my God, they hung out together. They were geniuses. They, that's the model. You know, we get in this competitive thing or your advance is bigger. No, we need to be brothers and sisters. We really do. Oh my gosh. You just gave me so much joy because put me in a group of other writers of color and I'm so happy. You're like, there's a joy in that and there's a sharing in that and there's an understanding. And sometimes you think, oh, especially in 2023, when people are reading more authors of color, there's definitely more visibility. And then, you know, literally you said that on the Jeopardy question, only one person knew the answer, <laughs> that it was Zora Neale Hurston. I literally wrote in my novel, the one novel I've written, Substitute Me, there's a line in there where my main character's name is Zora, and there's a interaction she has with a white woman, and the woman says, you know, who were you named after or something? And she says, Zora Neale Hurston, the writer. And the woman says, I've never heard of her. And Black people are like, that's ridiculous. That would have never happened. And I was like, no, <laughs> it does all the time. I, now I can say, ask Marita Golden. You know, Henry Louis Gates used to talk about how when, you know, he'd be on an airplane and talking to people, you know, how you get in these conversations. And he'd mention Richard Wright, Zora Hurston. These people would have no idea he was talking about. Yeah, it was assumed that he would know Thoreau. He would know all the great white writers, but there's no need for them to know the Black. And we've given so much. If you were to take African-American culture out of America, wouldn't be anything. And the great thing about America is this dream of multiculturalism from the beginning. As we begin to wrap up, I have two final questions for you. One if a writer, and I say emerging writer, I don't like to say young writer because I don't mean the 22-year-old necessarily. You could be 62 and be like, I'm ready to start my writing career. But if you had the opportunity to speak with an emerging writer who's really excited to like start their career as a creative writer, whether it was creative nonfiction or fiction, what would you give them as the one like piece of advice to pursue this career as a career seriously. And I don't necessarily mean a career to make money. I just mean that they're like ready to dedicate themselves to their writing. Well, write, strive for excellence, and don't be afraid. When I was writing my book, Saving Our Sons, which was set at a particular moment in history, you know, the 80s, the 90s, the drug wars. As I was writing, my question was, how can I write a book that 30 years later, people will still want to read? And so when I'm writing, I'm trying to write for the future, future readers. So that forces me to strive for excellence. That forces me to strive for beauty. And that makes it such an incredible experience that's very challenging, but that keeps growing me and expanding me. So write, don't be afraid. I love that. That's so, so good. And strive for excellence. Strive for excellence. No matter what you're writing, 
the best romance, since we got in these boxes, you know, the best YA, the best science fiction, whatever. And I love that, um, you know, to keep that thought in your mind of like, how can I write something that people are still going to want to read 20, 30, 40 years from now? That's the question you should be asking yourself. Not how can I get on the bestseller list when this book comes out? How can I write something that people will still want to read? All right, Marita, last question. What's next for Marita Golden? Is it another book, another organization, a trip trip around the world? (laughs) Well, I don't know. And that's the great thing. I mean, right now I'm writing a a magazine article about elderly caregivers caring for elderly people for Yes Magazine and the crisis around that in America. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. And I love that because so many things have come to me as a surprise. And my last two books, The Strong Black Woman, How a Myth Endangers the Physical and Mental Health of Black Women, and The New Black Woman Loves Herself, Has Boundaries, Heals Every Day, came out of my personal experience and have really put me in a position where I'm doing a lot of talking and speaking around the country around self-care, mental health. And this is an issue that is resonating particularly post-COVID. So right now I've got my my mental health and self-care hat on as an advocate and activist. And I had no idea seven or eight years ago that I would be writing this. So everything I don't know. And I'll, I'll let you know when I find out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's such a great thought to leave people with because that's what's so beautiful about having a writing life. You don't have to know exactly what comes next. Yeah. The key is to stay open. Like if you plan too much, you know, sometimes plans fall through and then what do you do? You're feeling miserable, like a failure. But on the other hand, if you're like, whatever happens next is what is what's going to happen next. And if you're a good seasoned writer, you take advantage of it, however it comes to you. So can you tell everybody, so just as a reminder, Marita is a literary consultant. She has classes, workshops. She does speaking engagements. She has 21 books, (laughs) 22 if you count. Marita, tell people where they can find you, if they want to hire you, if they want to find your books. What are the best places to find you and get in touch with you or to see what you're up to? www.maritagolden.com. And I'm on Facebook at Marita Golden Author and on X at Marita Golden. But yeah, reach out to me through my website. You can send me a, an inquiry there. And on my website, you can buy my books. You'll see everything about me. So of course, we'll put those links in the show notes. Marita, thank you so much. This has been such a treat. Oh, this was so much fun. So much fun. Yay. And I may have to come over there and do that little retreat with you in sunny Spain. I would love that. I would love that. Stay tuned. (laughs) I hope my conversation with Marita left you inspired and motivated to write. I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your own literary projects and practice. Here are some key takeaways from Marita that I hope you will apply to your own writing life. Number one, have a strong foundation for taking care of yourself early in your writing career. Take care of your body and your mental health if you want to live long and have a prosperous literary life. Number two, there is no shame in taking on literary projects that will pay the bills and afford you the lifestyle you want to have. So write what you have to write. Number three, writers need community. 
You need your literary brothers and sisters. Find yours and stay connected. Number four, the best education you can get as a writer is to write. And finally, number five, strive for excellence and don't be afraid. Don't focus on making the bestsellers list next week. Strive to write something that people will still want to read in 20 years. All right, those are Marita's takeaways. Apply them to your writing life and see what happens. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. Be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website at readwriteandcreate.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for the Read, Write, and Create bi-monthly newsletter, which is the first place where you'll find out about my latest classes and creative offerings. So be sure to sign up for that too. And on the website, you can also find all of my social media handles where you're most likely to find me on Instagram at Lori L. Tharps. And also we do have a new dedicated Read, Write, and Create Instagram account, and that's at Read, Write, and Create with create spelled C-R-E and the number eight, read, write, and create. Be sure to be following that Instagram account because that's where we make our announcements about upcoming events, also upcoming giveaways. So yeah, make sure you're following us there as well. And you know, I gotta remind you, if you know any BIPOC writers who might need a creative pep talk, please share this show with them. You can share it online. You can share it in real life. You can put a bumper sticker on the back of your car. I'm okay with whatever you do. Just help us get the word out. Tell everybody about it. Leave us a rating or a review on your podcast platform so that more people can get the inspiration they need to keep writing. Thanks, everybody. I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing.